Hi guys, welcome to another episode of the show and another mastermind conversation. We tried this on a whim. To be honest, we were like, oh, we have all of these incredible teachers and guests over the last six years. And what if we combine them into a mastermind? What if we picked a single topic and let the best teachers we've ever spoken to teach on this unique thing. It turns out y'all are really digging these conversations and I get it. I am just like you. I love when I'm looking for something really specific and I can hear ideas about it from a bunch of different angles. We've covered focus and productivity. We've talked about entrepreneurship and today it's something special just for the creatives, which in my opinion, is basically every single person. It doesn't matter what you do, whether you are a CEO or a CFO or a stay-at-home parent, whatever it is you're into, creativity is what helps us to think of new ideas, to think outside the box, to take ourselves and our lives to the next level. And today, I have handpicked some of my favorite conversations about creativity from some of the most successfully creative people I know. You're going to hear from Liz Gilbert, who, in my opinion, has written the single greatest book on creativity. It's called Big Magic, if you want to give it a go. You're going to hear conversations from Gay Hendricks, Phoebe Robinson, Reshma Sujani, Nick Stone. These are writers, comedians, creators of really incredible work that has lasted decades. So whether you're just dipping your toe into creativity or this is who you are, today's conversation is just for you. And if you dig it, if you get something out of it, will you please share it with another creative that you know? Let's share the wisdom of these incredibly wise teachers and get the word out about how amazing their perspective is. Hi, I'm Rachel Hollis, and this is my podcast. I spend so many hours of every single week reading and listening to podcasts and watching YouTube videos and trying to find out as much as I can about the world around me. And that's what we do on this show. We talk about everything, life and how to be an entrepreneur. What happened to dinosaurs? What's the best recipe for fried chicken? What's the best plan for intermittent fasting? What's going on with our inner child? How's therapy working out for you? Whatever it is my guests are into, I want to unpack it so that we can all understand. These are conversations. This is information for the curious. This is the Rachel Hollis Podcast. One thing I can tell you for certain after years and years and years of creative work and also living a life where I've made a lot of scary choices um, is that all of us who create anything in the world, whether it's on the huge scale or whether it's on the small intimate scale, we always begin at the same exact point. So everybody begins at the moment of inspiration, and which is a sacred moment and a holy moment and an exciting moment. 
And it's, it's a moment where you feel as though your imagination has been captivated by an idea. Um, and then that, you know, I like to think, um, and it's purely speculation because I don't know how the universe works any better than anyone else does, but just for the purposes of how I live, I like to think that ideas have consciousness and they have will and they, they love to interact with humans because we have the antenna to hear them and feel them. And then we also have the labor and the creativity to bring them forth. So I think of creativity as a, as a really mysterious union between a human being's labor and the mysteries of inspiration and the mysteries of inspiration. We will never quite know what that is, but we all experience it the same way, right? The hairs go up in the back of your neck. You, you feel a little sick to your stomach, a little nauseous, a little thrilled. You, you can't sleep, you get jitter, you know, you just get this, it's, it's like falling in love. You get this excitement of, of the moment of inspiration. And that's, I always think of as the moment of invitation when an idea comes to you and says, do you want to work with me? Do you want to work with me? And should we make something together? Um, me, the mystery and you, the human. And if you say no, that conversation ends very quickly. <laughs> and the idea, and that's fine. Like I've said no lots of times um, to ideas because I was doing something else or it wasn't the right time. So it's saying no is completely legit, but it closes off that invite. And then the idea will go to find somebody else and, and it'll keep going until it finds somebody who will manifest it, right? But if you say yes, the very, very next sensation that you will experience is terror. And that is going to be true whether it's the first time you've ever said yes to inspiration or whether you're writing your 20th book or starting your 15th company or whatever, or, or embarking on a new relationship, whatever this thing is that you're saying yes to, the very next thing, you can set your clock to it. It is a law of nature. The next thing that you're going to feel is fear. And the reason for that is that our creativity lives in a very recent part of our evolutionary brain. And it's still something that we're learning how to use. It's only about 100,000 years old, maybe a little bit older than that. But your fear is like the deepest evolutionary cortex of your brain. And it has one job. And it's one job is to, alive. is to keep you alive and specifically to keep you alive by preventing you from doing new things. Because your fear, if it doesn't know what something is, then it has an immediate toggle switch that like sounds the klaxon horns like wah, 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 that says like shut it down because, and this is your fear talking, I don't know what that thing is and I don't know what the outcome of that thing is going to be. And in order to keep you safe, I have to make sure that you never do anything where I fear cannot perceive what the outcome is going to be. And creativity is a realm where you will never know what the outcome is going to be. And so if you're going to live a creative life, you will be in a constant dance with fear because your fear will always be like, shut it down. This is going to end in your death. Like this is definitely going to end in, you're writing poetry now. This will end in our death because I don't even know what that is, you know? And so for me, my whole life of creativity has been about establishing a really loving synaptic conversation between my creative mind and my fearful mind and not trying to throw fear away or kick it out or show it who's boss or do any of the stuff that our culture teaches around fear because it doesn't work. Um, anytime I've ever tried to throw fear away, it comes back twice as strong because then it gets a signal that there's real trouble, right? So I just talk to it very lovingly and, um, and constantly and throughout the entire creative process. It's not something I do once or twice or 10 times. It's an everyday thing where I have to say to fear, I understand and respect completely why you're reacting like this because you don't know how this is going to end. But I've 
written a few poems before and so far no one has died from them. <laughs> so um, I'm just, you just speak in this really reassuring voice and you explain to it what you're doing um, and that you're going to continue doing it and that you allow that the fear gets to be there. So it's, I think what happens is that we have this misunderstanding that you're going to get to some point in your life where you're going to be fearless. And I think that the only fearless people in the world are either fully enlightened guru masters of whom there are few um, or sociopaths of whom there are many. Um, and, the, <laughs> and the rest of us are just going to have to learn how to feel that and yeah. to work with it and around it and through it, but never, never without it. So I guess, yeah. I guess what I want to say is I just want to normalize the, the fear experience and tell you that I go through it constantly. I expect that I will always go through it. Um, I don't want to be a fearless person because um, I, I don't think that's really a full person and unless, you know, as I say, someday I achieve full enlightenment, in which case <laughs> I'll let you know. But until then, I've just resigned myself and accepted to the fact that it's just part of the, the human psychological landscape and it's going to be with me. And it's proof, uh, Rob Bell, our friend Rob Bell would say, the fear, the butterfly in your stomachs, um, butterfly in your stomach is proof that you've got skin in the game. And, and that's, that's all it is. I've taught it a bunch of times. I mean, it's incredibly simple, but the, but it's more about the spirit that I try to get people into when they receive that letter. And that whole workshop that I did that day is essentially like a truth and reconciliation um, and, and peace accord hearing that you're going to have within your psyche between you and all these divergent voices within yourself so that you can all be integrated and be and get along with each other rather than being at war with each other. So I always say to people, you know, you're going to, the first letter of the day has to be the letter from fear because it's the first thing you're going to feel <laughs> like we have to deal with it. It's the first thing in the room. And, um, and it's quite simple. I mean, if it were you writing the letter, the prompt would be that I would give you the first two lines of the letter and, and the first two lines would be, dear Rachel, I am your mm -hmm. fear and this is what I want to tell you. And then you just allow your fear to speak. And as far as I'm concerned, every single sentence can begin with the, the phrase, I am afraid. Um, I'm yeah. afraid that, or I am afraid of, I'm afraid that, I'm afraid of. And you just list it. This is not fancy writing. This is just really visceral. And the way that I, I teach people to receive it is to imagine that I always say, imagine if you can, that you come from a dysfunctional family. <laughs> I know Crazy. I you're going to have to reach. Like. <laughs> yeah, you've read about them in books. You've seen it in movies. Imagine that you come from a family who doesn't know how to communicate well around emotions. And imagine that you are the first member of the family to have ever gotten well, emotionally well and emotionally healthy. And imagine that you have now gone back to the family and you want to make peace with every member of the family. And you're having a basically a truth and reconciliation hearing. And I say, like, it's a family of everyone's tired. Everyone is shredded. But there's this one person who is kind, peaceful, and is able to listen. And all your job is to do when you write that letter from fear is to not interrupt it, to not try to correct it to not try to override it, but to just allow it to speak and to respectfully, nonviolently listen. And I give people five or six minutes and they write the letter and then I tell them how to sign it. Sincerely, your fear. <laughs> and that's it. And what's, what, what I find remarkable about it is, is, you know, fear governs and guides and terrifies so much of our lives. But um, the reality is very few people are able to fill the five minutes. <laughs> Like once you yeah. actually sit back and say, okay, let's hear what you have to say, fear, and you don't interrupt, 
it doesn't, it doesn't usually have that much to say. And the things that it's afraid of are few, specific, and maybe reasonable. You know, um, I'm afraid I'm going to run out of money. I'm afraid my family is going to die. I'm afraid this isn't going to be a success. And you just let it speak. And then once, and then that's it. Once it's been allowed to speak, you say, thank you so much for sharing. And then we can actually move on with heading toward creativity. Because I think more than anything, fear, like all of us, just wants to feel like it's being respectfully heard. And once it's respectfully heard, I find that it tends to quiet down. And, you know, the fear is really like, the guardian of the bridge um, that says, you, you know, none shall pass here. <laughs> or like, I will not yes. let you by. And and really all it wants is, is to tell its tale, right? So if you're the, yeah. on the journey for creativity and you get to the bridge and the fear is like the troll that says you're not allowed to pass, the simplest way to quiet it down is to sit down and make it a cup of tea and say, tell me your story. Tell me yeah. what you're afraid of. And then it, it, it will let you go by. Um, it's mm. quite miraculous. Yeah. <laughs> I think of it as the steady, slow hum of well-being. And it's such an elusive thing for people to feel, and particularly for women to feel, because women carry so much anxiety. Even women whose lives look on the outside as though they've got it made in the shade um, are, are vibrating at this incredibly high, dizzying frequency of constant anxiety. And now, for me, where I find my enchantment is when I can get when I'm relaxed, it's almost a synonym for relaxed. Um, and, and that's because that's when creativity comes to me more easily. Um, so now I feel like I don't have to chase wonderful experiences. I don't have to see like sparkle unicorns jumping over rainbows in Nepal. <laughs> I mean, that's how I chased enchantment through my twenties and thirties was like chasing heightened experiences, you know? Mm. Um, and now I just know that if I, am at ease and well within myself, then my creativity will flow very nicely. Um, but that's all it takes um, is, is to just, so now I would just say your enchantment is the thing that makes you feel well. And I'm, I'm, I'm very specific about the difference between feeling well and feeling good. Um, because we, we chase a lot of things that make us feel good, but they don't necessarily make us feel well. <laughs> um, and there's a really big difference between feeling good and feeling well. Um, feeling good is fleeting and, um, and often comes with consequences. <laughs> yes. Yes. As a lot of us know, like chasing that thing that's going to make you feel really good instantaneously is also going to diminish and vanish instantaneously and leave you with I don't know, a broken marriage or a big credit card bill or an addiction or, you know, like, or all three. Um, but feeling well, feeling well, like what makes you feel like your shoulders aren't up in your ears? What makes you feel like your stomach doesn't have twists in it? Um, who can you be with and present in the room and you can actually breathe fully and let your guard down? That's enchantment to me now. That's what I think of as, as the nirvana, the most magical place. There's no way to not get happier as you get wiser. Um, so it's, it's, and it just goes in complete opposite. It's like opposite day to the terror, the terrifying story that culture tells you as a woman about what your best years are and what your best worth are. Um, you know, and, and that's just hilarious to me at this point, you know, it's like, who would ever sell anybody a story that, you know, you, when you're youngest and dewiest and your neck looks the best is when you're going to be the happiest. <laughs> right. right. You know, that's Crazy. crazy that is Crazy. literally 
psychotically crazy yeah. because you all you have to do is talk to young women yeah. and talk to old women yeah. to get the true story. Yes. <laughs> I was at so an really event well. recently and a woman, a lovely young woman raised her hand and she said, I've got a question for you. I'm 21 years old. And I just, I just said, oh, sweetie, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry, but it's going to get so much better. I had to be 21 once too. Like we all have to get through it, but you'll get through it. And someday you'll be yeah. 50 and it's going to be awesome. <laughs> yeah. Get, get to that place. You know, I think in a weird way, just directly to you, I, I would say that you, um, you're fortunate because you already have the experience of writing something that only 10 people read and having that be perfect. So yes, you know, in your body, you have a bodily psychological memory of what it feels like to make something that people don't care about and for you to be yeah. awesome. So yeah. that itself should be, or could be, if you focus on that, an amazing piece of liberation, which is to say, I can go do again, whatever I like, and I know that if, so I had the same thing, like my first book of short, whenever people come to me and say, I loved your first book, I'm like, pretty sure you're talking about Eat, Pray, Love, which was my fourth book. You know, I'm pretty sure you didn't love my small literary collection of short stories that 11 people have read, you know, but I loved it. Um, I loved it. And and I also was fine with, with, with hardly anybody reading it. So that puts you in a better situation than Harper Lee, um, because that, because to Kill a Mockingbird was her first book. So anybody who has like huge success straight out the gate, I feel like that is an, an enormous obstacle because they don't have that experience of knowing what it feels like to do stuff that nobody cares about and you just do it because you like doing it. Um, so one thing I would say is that it sounds to me like um, your writing prior to your explosive success was your medicine um, and that it was something that you did because it made you feel well, as we were discussing about that, that low hum of well-being that just feels good, right? So, and this I'll put out there to anybody, for a lot of us, for many of us, creativity was our first medicine. Um, and, and a lot of us who grew up as anxious people, and I was a really anxious kid, my creative outlets were my first medicine. So writing was a place that I went to because I could disappear into it I could have a holiday from having to be myself. I could forget, you know, I, I'd look up a couple hours passed and, and I got to spend, I mean, this is the greatest gift in the world. I got to spend a few hours not thinking about myself, you know, like, <laughs> and that is like, there's no greater peace you will ever have than not thinking about yourself, right? So our so creative endeavors, part of the reason that it's so medicinal, it's one of the great gifts that the universe has given to humanity is that when you are making something creative, you get a reprieve from having to think, having to worry, having to be. Um, so if if you're one of these people where where creativity was your first medicine, and then you know generally what happens is that usually around adolescence we discover the medicines that culture has created, which are shortcuts to well-being. So that's when we discover sex and substances and shopping and other things that begin with S. Um, and we start to use that to medicate ourselves or success. You know, we, we, we grow into that and we put the creativity aside. Um, but if you, if you were using creativity as your medicine and then it became something that was marketed um, and then it became something that was like your career, my suggestion to you is that you find another thing to do that is creative purely because it's fun. 
Um, so you're going to need new medicine because once yeah, your medicine yeah. becomes market, the market goes out in the marketplace, which means people have opinions about it. And then there's other people's tied to its success and you've got agents and you've got editors and you've got, um, followers and you've got brand, ma- I don't know, whatever, like there's like this whole thing around it, your medicine it's not that it's become corrupted. It's perfectly fine. It's a lovely gift what happened to you. And it's a lovely gift what happened to me. It's just that now you need a different medicine because mm. everybody needs to have something in their life that they can do that has no stakes, um, no stakes whatsoever. And so instead of me trying to coach you to get back to the way you used to feel about writing when it was innocent, go find something else that's innocent. So for me, after Eat, Pray, Love, it was gardening. Um mm. And I had moved to a big house that had a beautiful backyard and I didn't write. There was probably, before I wrote the final draft of Committed, there was probably a year and a half where I didn't write a word. Because um, I, I literally didn't know how to. Um, I didn't know how to write in the aftermath of Eat, Pray, Love. So I just, put it, I just put it away. And I was willing to also accept the fact that maybe I was done writing. You know, maybe my whole journey had been so that I could write this book that seemed to help a lot of people. And then maybe I was done and I could go be, I don't know, go to landscape landscaping school or something or just do something different and I was 100% willing for that to be true um and and I decided to just spend a year making the most beautiful garden and I did and it was it was in the autumn of the second year of the garden that all of a sudden while I was sort of raking leaves and putting the garden to bed that the first line of the book, what would become the book committed kind of floated down into my head and I was like oh I see how I could write it okay I got it and then I just went and wrote it and by all, by all calculus, the book that came after Replay Love was not a success. I mean, it was, if, you, if, I were, if I were a Fortune 500 company and you were gauging me on my profit margins and how well I did on my next product, which thankfully I'm not, you know, something like 13 million people read Replay Love. I think maybe, I don't know, maybe, maybe we sold 500,000 copies of, of, of Committed. I don't know. And, um, and people didn't want it, you know, like they wanted to eat, pray, love. And I, and that's fair. And, and I, you know, I, I've known people who would come up to me in tears, throw their arms around me, say, you are my favorite writer who has ever lived. Your work is the most important work to me in the entire world. I, I love and worship you. And I could say to them, have you read Committed? And they'd be like, no, I'm not interested in it. And I'm like, it's literally the sequel to eat, pray, love. <laughs> It's oh literally God. the sequel. And they're like, nah, I don't want it. And, and you can't make, <laughs> and I think that's hilarious. It's like, I can't pay people to read that book, you know? And, and but for so me, funny. it was a great victory because something had to be the book that came after Eat, Pray, Love or else I would never write again. And, um, yeah. and so once that book was out there in the world and people were like, nah, I don't want it. I was like, cool. Now I get to go back to writing whatever the fuck I want. Cause no one cares. <laughs> Yes. Yes. So I would tell you, get a hobby, get a hobby that doesn't have any, any financial or emotional stakes to you. Um, and then, you know, you'll, something's going to have to be the next thing and people will have yeah. their opinions about it, but then you'll be free and you're kind of yeah. free the whole time apart from the mind games. <laughs> yeah. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99. 
and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Debit card users, listen up. You've worked hard for your money. Now it's time to make it work even harder for you. With Discover Cashback Debit, everyone can get cash back on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Earn on things like gas, groceries, and even that midday latte. And to top it off, there are no fees, period. Yep, that means you won't be charged fees on your checking account. Transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. When I first started doing stand-up, it was very, you know, even doing five minutes on stage was just sort of terrifying. So I write everything out, and then I would just sort of stand in front of a mirror, and I would rehearse everything, even the, how's it going, guys? <laughs> Great drink, like everything. Pause for. Oh my gosh. So, it's so real, though. Yeah, that's, that's how you learn. Yeah, and I was just so sort of dorky. So I, I really would just really try to memorize every single thing. And now I'm about 11 years in. So it's a lot of, I will have an idea for a joke, maybe write down a few lines and then sort of talk it out on stage and see if there's a little like kernel of something. And then I'll go back home and really sit down and punch it up and expand. Like I have this joke that I'm working on right now that started out being like two minutes long and now it's like 10 minutes oh wow yeah and it's that's just, amazing yeah it's a joke i've been working on for i don't know five, uh, four months and yeah. it's really just expanded and yeah it's interesting because i don't know if people outside of the comedy space would understand mm -hmm. how much effort will go into a single joke sometimes you're you're going okay maybe it's too early to talk to make a sex joke i'll move it to like the latter half hour and it, it works better so mm -hmm. i think you just have to sort of figure it out and the audience kind of lets you know when they're ready or not yeah. ready or something or you might think oh this is a great connector i can move this joke up and bridge it with that and yeah got it i mean that's it and i was talking about this with a couple comedic or comedy friends of mine is that we're in a very interesting sort of place with comedy because it's everywhere it's on netflix comedy central hbo people go to clubs and they only want to hear the a material because they're just used to seeing all these specials and it's sort of well you're only going to get the a material if you try and fail and sort of fumble and figure it out um so it's really sort of trying to manage everyone's expectations and also not being afraid of not having a good set. You yeah. know what I mean? Like you just have to sort of understand some nights are going to be great. Other nights are not going to be that good. I just came back from Scotland. I did the Edinburgh Fringe Festival for two weeks, which I fully hated. But I was going to say, what yeah. was that? How, I was just going to ask yeah. how it changes based on the city that you're in. Yeah. I mean, it was just me performing for a lot of old white men. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, this isn't for yeah. you. I yeah. don't, I'm not trying, you know what this I mean? It's not going to resonate. Yeah. yeah. But there was something about every single night I would get up and do the hour and you sort of, I just sort of got kind of numb to the, the UK people don't respond to jokes the way the Americans are. Yeah. Like, we're much more, you know, yeah. boisterous. And yeah. They would be like, oh, that was funny. Yeah. But they had a great time. They, <laughs> yeah. like, loved it, yeah. but they're not super expressive. Um, but there was something about getting up 
you know, 14 nights in a row running the hour that really sort of, it was this weird thing where it kind of felt like Groundhog's Day, but it sort of felt like doing it that much sort of got, got it better faster. Yeah. I don't know. It was really, really interesting and yeah. cool. I don't know if I would do it again, but it was but a But what fun, a great challenge for yeah, yourself. It was a good thought experiment. Yeah. So how then did you, or when did you start transitioning into, I'm going to write a book? Um, so I am a workaholic and, <laughs> which I'm sure, yeah, yep, yeah. I got you. And, uh, when I started out doing comedy, I had a day job. So I would do the day job and then I would go do an open mic or a show, maybe get done around midnight, go back home and do the, and do the same cycle all over again. And I was just, I, cause I studied writing in college and I was thinking, you know, it might be kind of fun to just have a, a, a an outlet to blog or whatever and not have it be necessarily career dependent, but just more an exercise in me becoming a, a stronger writer. So I started this blog called Blaria, which stands for Black Daria. And this was <laughs> maybe 2010, 2011. And I was having a lot of fun doing it. And I was sort of like, you know, maybe I could write an essay collection because at the time I was really reading a lot of essay collections. Like I loved Mindy Kaling, mm-hmm. Tina Fey, all that stuff, Roxanne Gay. I was just thinking, that's really cool and I would love to do that someday. So that really sort of focused the blog. So I really became like, okay, three three days a week I am writing a blog post. It's got to be like 2,000 words. And I just really put myself in this own schedule. Of course, it was like unpaid. I wasn't making yeah. any money. Yeah. Um, but I just really kept sort of doing that. And I wrote this blog post about... I remember when Girls came out. And I wrote a blog post about it. And it was, I had a lot of feelings about the show. <laughs> <laughs> Not a lot of them were positive. And um, I remember Huffington Post was like, oh, we really like this article. Can we like reblog it on our whatever? Yeah. And of course, I didn't get paid for it. But I was so excited. I was like, this is really cool. Yeah. And I had a manager at the time. And I'm no longer with her. Um, and I told her, I was like, you know, like, I think writing could be another path for me and I really would like to write a book and she goes well you're not famous so no one would ever want to read a book by you oh my and I was thought oh okay well yeah there are a ton of non-famous white guys who have books about fucking nothing (laughs) (laughs) and I was just I think that's wrong and so a few months maybe like nine months later my lit agent Robert, he reached out to me. hadn't We hadn't worked together yet. And he had heard about me, and he read my blog, and he goes, I think you're a, a writer. He's like, I'm pretty sure you already have a book deal somewhere, but if you don't, I would love to grab lunch and sort of figure it out. And I thought, this is the sign. Yeah. Like, I'm very much into signs. And so we met up, and he's amazing. He works at um, a great uh, um, publishing company in New York, and you know, he's queer, so he really likes to support women of color, mm-hmm. queer people, mm-hmm. and just people of color in general and get their stories out because he's like publishing is so white Absolutely. and male and straight yep. and your story is not often yep. told. Um, and we just really hit it off. And that really sort of changed my career trajectory where I, writing became this really huge part of whatever I do now. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. And yeah. so tell me about the first book. Yeah. And then the transition to the second one. Yeah. So the first book you can't touch my hair and everything's so i still have to explain i wrote 
a proposal, which you had to do, everyone has yep. to do, and you're just like, this yeah. is so fucking Yeah, hard. it takes so much yes. time, and you second guess everything, <laughs> mm-hmm. and yeah, it's the worst. And then you're like, does anybody want to read this? Exactly. Well, I don't know if I should write this, but you, you, you finish the, the, the thing, and then I remember I got, last minute, I got offered... Um, a spot to do a late night spot on Seth Meyers. And I always want to do late night. Obviously I want to do when Letterman was on, but I was nowhere <laughs> near good enough for Letterman. Um, and I was like, Oh, this is really cool. And my lit agent was like, this is great. You can do this spot. And then the day after it airs, I'll just send out the proposal along with a link to your stand up so nice. people can see it. And I was like, this is great. Yeah. And I remember, um, Pretty much everyone except for one publisher was just passed on me. They were like, she's not famous. They're like, she's right about the black experience. This isn't marketable. They're like, no one outside of America would ever read this book. It was just a lot of like, Mm -hmm. no, like she, her voice isn't interesting or whatever. And then, um, so I ended up going with Plume, which is a division of Penguin, and they just totally got it, and they were really supportive, and they were they said that they thought it was so funny, and that you know they're I'm speaking about a lot of things that a lot of people experience, yeah, um, and they were really great, but it was really interesting to be trying to shop your stuff around where everyone's being like, basically, you being a black woman isn't marketable, and yeah. you're like, what, yeah. It's very bizarre. Yeah. Yeah. That. Uh. And so what year was this? When this, this was, was 20. I sold it in tw- January 2015. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so then how how was the response when the book came out? What was, like, what did that feel like? Yeah. It comes out into the world, and then how are people receiving it? It was really, I think what was really cool, because it came out October 2016, and the Two Dope Queens podcast premiered April 2016. So it was really a lot of good momentum Mm -hmm. and um, it ended up being on the bestsellers list for two weeks, which was really cool. Um, And so unexpected. I really wanted to make the list, but then when I got it, I was so... With your first book, that's amazing. that's wild. Seriously. Yeah. Um, And it was really nice. A lot of people in the comedy community were supportive, like Carrie Brownstein Mm -hmm. and... I did this Amazon show with Kevin Bacon and he like read it and posted about <laughs> it. And it was just like, you know, people you never think yeah. you would ever meet are now being so nice and warm and generous. And it was really cool. And I remember <laughs> Robert, my lit agent, he called me and one of the people that like totally passed on me after the book came out and became a success, like emailed Robert, like, how come you never sent oh this? Oh my gosh, yeah. I had the same yeah. thing happen. And the lit agent went and found the email yeah. where the person passed. Mm-hmm. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Oh my, sorry, I jumped your story. Yeah, no, wait, no. say what you were saying. Yeah, so how come you never sent this proposal to me? This was great. I would have loved to work on it. And he was like, I did, and yes. you passed. yes. Yeah. It's so validating yeah. when you're like, hi, yeah, we did, you said no. Oh, it's yeah. so validating. So that was really cool. And it was really, it was, it was nice to see because I think you don't really realize like how publishing isn't really reflective of a lot of people's voices Absolutely. until you like get in it and you go, oh, okay, like I wanted to make sure I had a black woman be my publicist. And that was Mm -hmm. like really important to me because I wanted to make sure that like, you know, I'm writing about black hair and all this other stuff that's really important to the black community that I wanted someone who really got it. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was really, really cool. And I I had a lot of fun. It was the hardest 
the second book was easier to write. The first book was really hard. Like, I was crying a lot. I was like, this sucks. Like, I'm not good enough. Because you're working through stuff that you're writing about or because the process sucks It's so just much. the process yeah. sucks. And it's just sort of, you know, how much did I, what was my book deal? It was, what, 25000 mm-hmm. And, which is nothing. Yeah. And so when I, I sold the book and then when I started work on it, I started getting paid for it. I broke up with my boyfriend and I had to move out and I truly had no money because I was just freelancing and blogging. And so whatever little I got from my book advance was just so I could like move into an apartment and get furniture. And so it was really hard to sort of have to start over in a way where, you know, I thought this was going to be the person I was going to marry. It was going to be fine. Um, And so that felt really hard because I was 20, no 30 I was 30 lol wish it was 28 but (laughs) I was 30 and I felt like I was going backwards again Mm. and I was like I'm still in massive amounts of debt and I'm writing this book that you know my take home for 25 grand is what yeah 15 15 yeah if you're lucky if you're lucky so I'm like, okay, I'm not making any money doing this. I'm freelance blogging. I'm doing stand-up and no one cares. I'm 30. I should be a little bit more ahead of the curve. And so it really felt, I don't know, I just felt like, what am I doing? And so when the book w- was a success, that really felt good. And it felt like, okay, it was great to sort of follow through on my instinct. But it, it was just really hard to sort of be in a place where you can't really support yourself. And you're like, well, I'm writing a book. Because yeah. that sounds It that sounds, sounds sexy yeah. and like, oh, you are must be raking in the yeah. millions. And you're like, no, I'm starving and eating top yeah. ramen. Yeah. So it was really hard, but it, it, it was worth it for sure. Because I – so I have – Employees now. I have three employees, which, you know, and last year I had like, I went from no employees to three. And I think the biggest thing is I've learned how to be a boss. And I think a lot, a lot of times people think when I'm in charge, it's going to be like, you know, I'm just going to be making money. And (laughs) And I wasn't like that, but it was definitely, you know. And I sit down with my business managers and go over insurance packages and talk about medical leave and make sure NDAs are signed. And the other thing is sort of managing all your employees' expectations and making sure you have that one-on-one time Mm -hmm. to make sure they feel valued and they feel nurtured. And so it's a lot of... It feels like even though they work for you, you kind of also work for them. 100%. And that's, yeah. I think, the thing that I didn't really realize. And then I was like, oh, okay. So I make sure to do the check-ins and um, make sure to encourage people's contributions. Yeah. And all those things where it just, it is so much more collaborative. I do think I feel the most pressure because it's my face and my name. Absolutely. And no one's going to care about it as much as I do. Absolutely. Um, but... It's, you know, it's delegating and letting other people into the fold Mm -hmm. and that sort of thing, I Mm -hmm. think, has been the biggest lesson. And I think it's allowed me to sort of level up and be able to take on these new sorts of responsibilities, even if I don't have a lot of experience doing it prior to that. Mm -hmm. I feel like I've become a, a, a good or a quick learner because I can sort of 
just be in the moment and be like, okay, this is going to be a place where I have to learn. You know, sometimes whether it's my assistant Amanda or my office coordinator, my, they will have a good idea. And I would make sure in an email to be like, oh, Amanda's brought this idea. I think that's really great. And I think it's important to give that credit. It's of course, like it's all, it all doesn't really matter because it's all, we're all working together. Mm But those moments allow the person to be like, oh, I'm being I'm seen. I'm seen. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So what's interesting about my journey to becoming an author is I did want to be a writer, but as a black woman, not mm-hmm. seeing writers who looked like me hindered me in yeah. a lot of ways, Yeah, um, which is why I write the stuff that I do. Um, not only because it's like when, I guess it hit me when I hit my late 20s that like if I wasn't seeing myself in books, other people weren't getting an opportunity to see me either. Absolutely. And realizing how important that was is kind of what made me decide to go ahead and take the plunge. Yeah. It's wild, right? Like not when you don't see yourself in, you know, books are something that we are forced to look at from the time we enter schooling, Mm -hmm. right? So like pre-K on, I remember The Very Hungry Caterpillar from like pre-K, right? And you know, it's a book about a caterpillar, but like as you get older and you're forced to read books about actual human beings, when you don't see human beings in those books that look like you, you start to wonder if you actually exist. Mm. Like books have such a way of shaping our notions of reality, Um, books and media, books, films, TV, etc. But because books are tied to literacy and literacy is tied to like success, you know, I realized that like, yo, I had to do something Mm -hmm. um, because... It's not fun um, growing up. I think I saw like three black people in the books I had to read between eighth and 12th grade. And I was like the only black kid in the class. So we're reading Huck Finn and we got Jim, who I couldn't even understand half the time because of the way he's written. And then there's Tom Robinson from To Kill a Mockingbird, who did nothing wrong, but winds up having to face the consequences of this thing that he didn't even do. And then there's Crooks from Of Mice and Men, who he couldn't really get anything done despite being this really sweet character. Like, they weren't heroes, right? Like, I never saw myself as a hero in a story growing up or, like, even afterward. And I think I, I'm all about changing that. So, like, where you want to see yourself and women who are going to come up behind you in positions of authority in business, I want the same thing when it comes to literacy mm-hmm. and when it comes to books when it comes to media um because i think honestly that's where empowerment comes from seeing people who look like you doing this very powerful thing yeah so interestingly enough i didn't think i could write fiction and i I remember being like 22 23 24 even and i'm 34 now and i remember looking around loving reading books but feeling like i could never write fiction. I loved reading fiction, but I didn't think I could write it. And it took me reading actually the Divergent series Mm -hmm. by Veronica Roth. That was the first book series where a black character lives through the end. And it like awakened something within me um, because this girl in this book, Christina is the character's name. She was the first time I was like 27 or 28 when I read this book. And I think I was 28 when I read the second one. I was 27 when I read Divergent and 28 when I read Insurgent. And then Allegiant came out. But like this whole series, you see this black girl. I got to see this black girl like doing the things that I felt like I would do if I were in her shoes. 
that was a really powerful experience for me. So at 28, I decided to give it a try. I decided to try and write fiction. And like the first go round was trash. Yeah, like my first it always book is. was so bad. <laughs> yeah. And I think that we should both stress yes. this, right? Yes. Like if you are a person who wants to write a book, recognize that the first time might not be great. Yeah. And that's okay. Yeah. Right? Honestly, the first several times yeah. were not that great for me. Absolutely. Dear Martin was the third book I wrote, and it was the first one published. So, like, you know, you got to kind of keep at it. Yeah. Practice makes improved. Yeah. Um, But, yeah, it took – but then once I, like – once it clicked that it was a thing that I could do, I can't stop. Yeah. It's, like, all I want to do now. Yeah. This is my message, really, to your listeners – you are allowed to be good at more than one thing. Mm. We're kind of taught and conditioned that like, okay, this is the thing that you're good at. Like, stick to this thing. And if you try to do other things, you're that whole jack of all trades but a master of none. A jill of all trades yes. but a master of none. But I think that's bullcrap. Yeah. Like, I do think it's possible to be good at multiple things. And I absolutely plan to do all of it. Yeah. I want to do nonfiction. I want to do adult fiction. I want to do picture books. I'm going to do all of it. I want to screenwrite, and I'm going to do these things. That's awesome. Yeah. Interestingly enough, I sold Dear Martin in February of 2015, and it took 32 months or so before it was actually on a shelf. Yeah. But once, like, the beginning of 2017 hit and people started reading the book, they started liking the book, and now it's a book that's constantly assigned in schools. Um, I have the utter privilege of getting to, like, travel around the country talking about racism, Mm -hmm. you know, to kids as young as 12. Like, I've been in middle schools. I've been in high schools couple weeks ago, I was like in this very small technical school in in the upper peninsula of Michigan. Oh my gosh. (laughs) It was like me and like two sets of 800 students, first year students, like 80% of whom were like straight white dudes. Yeah. From conservative areas. Um, So it's afforded me the opportunity to talk to so many different types of people. And it's wild. Uh, I tell people with that book, it is my intention. It was my intention to make as many people uncomfortable as possible because mm-hmm. it's like in discomfort that we're, that's where we grow, right? Absolutely. So like across the racial spectrum, no matter who you are, where you come from, what your, eth- what your ethnicity is, you will be uncomfortable at some point reading this book, which is, um, which is important mm-hmm. um, when talking about an issue like this. But with the second book, I got to play on completely different characters. I didn't keep yeah. that story going. So is that what you did or this Same. is truly his sequel? Yeah, no. So this is, I call it a sequanion. So <laughs> it's like a sequel time-wise, yes. but a companion novel and that is from a different perspective. Got it. Yeah. And how was that to write? <sighs> you know, they were both really awful yeah. to write. Yeah, um, I understand that. The research was excruciating. There's a lot that I don't, I just don't want to think about, you know, Um but I had to for both of these books. This, the sequel really, the Sequanian, <laughs> it really deals with the juvenile justice system and inequities, racial inequities in the juvenile justice system and how a lot of these African-American boys wind up kind of criminalized before they even get an opportunity to be like 13, you mm-hmm. know? Um, you You make one mistake and suddenly you have this record, and because of this record, you're kind of sent on a very specific trajectory, and it's something that really bothers me. Uh, So where in the first book I'm dealing with just kind of systemic racism and microaggressions and all the ways that, you know, from the foundations of this country, things have been set up for certain people to be able to succeed and other people to be, to to struggle Mm -hmm. um, with that. This book is more about 
circumstances and how a lot of the time we don't think when it comes to black boys specifically, we don't think about the circumstances of their lives that have led them to where they are. Mm -hmm. Interestingly enough, we tried to sell a different book before Dear Martin, and the editor, who is just a dream to work with, while she liked my writing, she wasn't sold on that other story. So I sold Dear Martin on on, um, on proposal. Mm. Um, 13 pages that, like, I just spit out. They gave me 12 hours to, like, spit out an idea. And in writing it, I, I, like, had a deadline from Jump. Yeah. Um, and so I had to kind of research and write simultaneously, which was terrible. Yeah. But now that's the way that I do things because yeah. I got so used to like doing it that way um, that now that just makes more sense to me. I Absolutely. Guess. Like I said before, I think it's totally fine to be good at more than one thing. Yeah. And to be in pursuit of more than one thing. Even within the publishing industry, you don't have to stay in one age range. You don't have to stay in one genre. Like if you... I'm built, I've built a YA audience. Now I'm going to work on building a middle grade audience and then I will work on building an adult audience. Yeah. And I think that like, it's fine that not everybody reads everything that I do. Absolutely. Like I can do this for you and I'll do this over here for you and this over here is for you. Yeah. And we'll just go from there because yeah. why not? Almost every morning of my life, I have oatmeal. Seriously, during the winter, having something hot in the morning really makes a big difference in my day. Quaker has been a trusted name in oatmeal for over 145 years, which means they've been milling oats since before the invention of the zipper, the stop sign, or ballpoint pens. Quaker has something for everyone, whether it's old-fashioned or quick oats that are good for cooking or baking. And while a ton of things have changed, the good stuff remains the same. Quaker, getting up to some good since 1877. Look for Quaker Oats at your local grocery store. I am taking my four children away this weekend to go skiing. And I think if you're a parent like me, you understand how important it is to have a kitchen available to you when you have four kids, which is why Airbnb is always the place that I head to just make the vacation easier. And I have always used Airbnb as a place to stay, whether it was for work or family or a girl's weekend. But more and more, my friends are using Airbnb in a totally different way as a business, as a way to invest in property and earn money for it. While you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle, and it's a great way to earn some extra money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash hosting. Guys, no two listeners of the show are exactly alike, which means that no two vacations you take are going to be exactly alike either. And if you're looking for a place that will serve all of you, Texas has a vast landscape of cultures, regions, destinations, and activities that allow for an infinite number of different travel experiences. I love Texas so much, I moved my family there for five years. Because here's the deal, Texas has it all. Are you a beach person? We got you. 
If you love a rugged vacation, not my jam, but there's plenty of campgrounds, hiking trails, and state parks galore. My favorite part about Texas, the food. It is the thing I miss the absolute most. Whether you love barbecue or Tex-Mex or just want to be in cities that take their food very seriously. You can enjoy live music, visit internationally recognized art museums, and check out thrilling cowboy experiences. Visit TravelTexas.com slash get your own to get the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. That's TravelTexas.com slash get your own. I say that people are really working overtime to find out how to express their genius. And if they can't figure out how to do that, then that generates more anxiety and depression inside themselves if they can't find what that unique thing is that they're here to do. That's what I hope that people will have out of this conversation, too, is that people will go looking for what that genius is, what that unique ability that it's at the sweet spot about what you most love to do and what makes the biggest contributions to people's lives around you. To me, that's genius. When I can do something like write a book or whatever it is that can help people resolve their own problems without having to talk to me, that to me is fantastic. That's a good use of genius. Or when a chef can make a fantastic recipe and then put it out in a magazine so everybody can do it. And that to me is the exquisite use of genius is when you combine those two factors, what you're uniquely suited to do, what your genius, what your most loved thing is to do, and what makes that big contribution to other people. One of my mentors, Abraham Maslow, used to say, it doesn't matter whether it's a genius soup or a genius symphony. It's exactly the same. Maybe it's only going to be enjoyed by four people over the dinner party, but it's got that person's heart and soul in it. You know, it's got their creativity in it. Here we say that creativity is whatever has the capacity to surprise you. And it's got to have that edge of aha to it. And, And if you can combine that with something that makes a contribution to other people, you're living an exquisite human existence, in my opinion. Well, think of four boxes. Uh, One box is your zone of incompetence. And in that box are all the things you do that you're not any good at and you don't like to do, but you go ahead and do them anyway. Right. (laughs) And everybody's got a stack of those somewhere. So the, the, the brutal advice there, full frontal advice is quit doing those things as quickly as possible. Don't do stuff you're not any good at. Get somebody else to do it. Like, I don't like organization of my office. I leave stuff around. One of my fatal flaws as a human being, but I have a genius organizer who for 50 bucks an hour will come over and do something that I absolutely hate doing. So she can spend two hours in my office and it looks like a whole new place, you know, for a hundred bucks. And so maybe you can't afford the hundred bucks. You can find somebody to do that, but get out of your zone of incompetence. The second box that people get stuck in is their zone of competence where they're doing something they're good at, but somebody else could do it just as well. So you don't want to get stuck in that box either because you can be easily replaced if you're in a business and you're doing that. The third zone is, has its good aspects and also it has a real trap built into it. Uh, 
the zone of excellence is when you're doing stuff that you're really good at and other people acknowledge you for it and you feel good about your ability to do it, but it doesn't tap your full capabilities. It doesn't tickle that place in us that's not tickled until we really release our full potential and get busy finding out what is my full potential? What is it that I most love to do? And once we start asking questions like that, life takes on a vibrancy. You know, I started back in the 80s. I'll, I'll tell you about the fourth zone in a minute. But um, I started back in the 80s. I realized I was only spending 10% of my time in this fourth zone I call the zone of genius. I realized that there were some people like Michael Dell that was spending a huge amount of his time in his zone of genius. And I really admired that. And I wasn't spending as much time in mine. And so I started working on 20%, 30%. In other words, three hours a day devoted to stuff I love to do rather than out of the nine hours a day. By the end of the century, by 1999, I was basically spending all my time in my genius zone or getting around from place to place and eating and sleeping and all the stuff I needed to do. But I eliminated everything else. And so for the past 25 years, I've been basically only doing things I love to do and make the biggest contribution to people. And it makes for a wonderful life. Yeah. I don't ever feel like I waste any time. Yeah. How much did your life begin to shift and change as you started to increase time in that zone? Oh, it, it, it changed basically overnight every time I made a quantum jump. And I found that every time, like when I got to 50%, that was a huge thing. And then when I got to 70%, that was also another huge thing when I realized, you know, that I was spending seven out of the nine hours of my day doing things that I absolutely love to do. But there were still these other areas that I was thought I had to do. Um, in the genius zone, in the fourth zone, it's characterized by, number one, you're doing stuff you love to do. Number two, you're doing stuff that makes that big contribution. Number three, you're doing stuff that time is irrelevant for. In other words, it doesn't necessarily take a lot of time in your genius zone to think up amazingly creative ideas. I used to have a, a movie business called the Spiritual Cinema Circle that I invented in 10 seconds. It took me 10 seconds to come up with the idea. Uh, I had a, a good buddy that I he'd flamed out in the movie business because he, he made a movie called uh, What Dreams May Come that cost $80 million to make, but it only made $40 million. Oh, and, no. Uh, nothing worse than walking into a restaurant in Hollywood having lost $40 million of some rich guy's money, you oh, know? So no. he became kind of overnight. <laughs> he didn't want to hang around Hollywood. Uh, Stephen Simon, he's a great guy. And uh, he's done other movies like um, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure oh, and yeah. things like that. Uh, but his his sweet spot was spiritual movies like Somewhere in Time and What Dreams May Come. But anyway, those didn't make any money. And he got on the bad side of Hollywood. So he came to me and I helped bail him out financially and ended up owning part of his company. And so what can I do with the movie business? I don't know anything about the movie business. I even don't like to drive down to LA all that much. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so and fortunately... We would go down to L.A. and we'd pitch inspirational movies to studios and we'd get thrown out. You know, people don't want to watch a movie about conversations with God, guys. Get out of here. Uh, people don't want to watch a, a movie about um, illusions. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and 
people don't want to see movies. And so we got thrown out of all these cigar smoking offices down there. So one morning after meditation, I've been a long time meditator since uh, 1972. Um, I meditate every day. And after meditation, about 5 a.m., I got this idea, 10 second idea. Oh, instead of trying to get Hollywood to make them, let's go to film festivals and find them all the movies that Hollywood won't touch, and we'll send them out on DVDs to people who want to see them. Well, pretty soon we, we launched a business and we had 25,000 subscribers in 70 or 80 com- countries. Cool. And, and I ended up selling the business for more than $10 million um, three years later to a big company that knows how to run big businesses, you know, because I'm hopeless at administration and things like that. So I created this gigantic monster. Fortunately, we were able to sell it to a, a company that, uh, you know, ran it for the next 10 or 15 years without us having to be involved with the administration of it. But I, what I want to make is a 10 second idea turned into a $10 million product. It doesn't have to take long to think up genius ideas. And so that's one of the things, in fact, we say is that genius is partly doing things that you love to do and also doing things that don't take up a lot of time in order for you to think up creative ideas. And so your your creativity ups and the speed at which your creativity comes up to the extent that you have gone down inside and made friends with all those emotional barriers in ourselves and really owned that you belong here in this universe. You deserve to be here. You're, you're the same as everything else. We're all made of the exact same components. And so there's complete equality here in the actual real world. Now, in the political world, things stack up. You know, In the material world, one person has more money than the other. But at the fundamental level, we are all absolutely equal, and we're possessed with that incredible human consciousness that allows us to invent something out of nothing. You know, we don't have to keep going through the same motions. I once was in a, a uh, aquarium in um, New Zealand where I saw this creature called the slime eel, also known as a hagfish. And it was in a tank and it was swimming in a figure eight. And the entire time I watched it, it was swimming in a figure eight. That's what it does. That's the hagfish lifestyle, you know. And uh, uh, but I was amazed by it. It had on the little tag that it hadn't changed in three hundred fifty million years. It had making that same movement. It sits in the ocean and goes around in a. And the reason is, if you try to grab it. It exudes slime, up to a quart of slime. And so that's its way of defending itself from having to change its patterns. Wow. Have you ever known any human beings that like that, that slimed you when you tried to change their pattern? Yeah. Well, just know they're depicted in uh, in an aquarium in New Zealand down there uh, called the slime eel. But uh, what it is, it's a metaphor, I think, for we need to be open to feedback, you know, 30 times women tried to tell me I needed to be more in touch with my feelings. And then one day, finally, I got it, you know. And uh, But along the way, (laughs) if I hadn't been so oblivious, I I could have learned something in 10 seconds that would have changed my life. The easy way is in your body. And in your body, you can tell whether the thing you're doing is something you love to do. And here's the thing, Rachel— A lot of times to find your genius now, you know, whether you're 40 or 50 or 35 or 55 or 65, 
it's important to go back to childhood and ask yourself, what did I most love to play with? You know, what was the game or the thing I made up? Because that will oftentimes give you a cue to what your real genius is. Uh, you know, the story, I forget if I told it in the big leap. Did I tell the story about the tricycle and my fifth birthday and everything? I don't know. I, yeah. I don't remember that. Well, uh, I grew up in a little town in Florida, in the central Florida called Leesburg. It's about uh, 40 miles from Orlando. It's a town of 10,000. I was born in 1945. There was no psychiatrist, psychologist, social worker, school counselor, anything like that in Leesburg, Florida. There was a bunch of churches, but that was about it. For some reason, though, my fifth birthday, I got a tricycle and it was raining outside. And so my grandmother allowed me to ride it around her big living room. And the first thing I did was I got my granddad to help me set up a big cardboard box in the corner of the room. And I would ride my tricycle over to the corner and get into my box. And that became my office. Yes, and there people could come and tell me their problems. Yeah. Now, of all the things I could have come up, how in the world did I come up with that? You know, So I think somehow maybe all of us, but some of us come wired in almost with something we're com we feel compelled to do. And if you tune into that, you know, who was it that was telling me that grew up near uh, in the same family as a famous designer? Um, I forget who it was, but, but from the time he was three or four years old, he was always cutting out cloth and rearranging cloth on the floor and that kind of thing. And later on, you know, 20 years later, becomes a famous designer. So something in us, I think, and in, in um, one of my favorite quotes from the Gospel of Thomas, which was one of the apocryphal Gospels that didn't make it into the official Bible, probably because it had quotes like this. It said, <laughs> it said, if you bring forth what is within you, what is within you will save you. And if you don't bring forth what is within you, what is within you will destroy you. Oof. Oof. Yeah. And, but it's the truth, you know, like, um, I remember a person who came to me once who'd been in a, a convent for many years and she had cancer and she had figured out that she was getting less and less interested in not expressing her sexuality. Mm -hmm. She was getting more interested in her sexuality the longer she, and she decided she wanted to go outside the monastery and, or the convent and have a relationship with one of the other women there. And they were kind of heading in that direction, but hadn't taken the big leap, so to speak. And so she got sick though. And so can you see how that would work? You Absolutely. know, the, this incredible sexual attraction. And if you're saying no to that, your whole body goes into a kind of a revolt against that. And, you know, fortunately, she caught on in time. I encouraged her to go all the way with that, you know, uh, get that person, make a commitment, do something different from your life. And, you know, the cancer went away and both of them ended up thriving later on. As a matter of fact, they went into a most un-nun-like uh, business. I forget what it was. It was not operating a weed store. It was operating a hot tub emporium or something <laughs> like that. You know, some different kind of thing That's than, hilarious. than you would expect. But last time I heard they were going strong, you know, 20 years later. Amazing. Yes, probably if you're going to start with one, The Big Leap, and also in Relationship Conscious Loving yes. that we'll be talking about, those are the two uh, best ones to start with. And also, I want to salute the your listeners 
to me, one of the most important things that human beings can have is to be in touch with that questing spirit. And probably anybody that's listening to this has that. I was listening to this podcast on the rebel brain. It's one of the like NPR brain. There's like a series of brain things. That's one of the NPR podcasts. But they were talking about how how important it is once you become an expert at something to go back to being an amateur at something else. Oh, that's um, good. To keep the elasticity. You, you, like you yeah. want to keep learning. Like yeah. you should never stop learning because the minute you become an expert and you stagnate, like nobody's going to, okay, cool, you're an expert and now what? Yeah. You know? um, and also it's just good for us as individuals to continuously be learning and continuously be like stuffing ourselves with things that are new and shoving ourselves outside of our comfort zones. Yeah. And I think that that's just, I, you know, I think that that's an important thing. I'm Therapy has been wrecking my life lately. Um, <laughs> but some of the things that I am taking from it with regard to doing the uncomfortable and like pursuing things you don't know you're good at yet. Yeah. Because I feel like a lot of us have all of this kind of untapped magic inside of us that we never unleash, we never find because we're too busy focusing on how other people think of us. Mm-hmm. And the more time we spend trying to dig that stuff out, figuring out what makes us think, like what makes me tick? What are the things that bother me? What are the questions that I have about the world that I'm afraid to ask because I'm afraid of the answer? Like digging into those things, I think is just so enriching. And there's so much that you can like, not only that you can discover, but that you can like give to other people from all of this untapped stuff that we each have. Yeah. So please write that book. Yeah. That that yes. said not to. Yes. So I don't, like it feel I definitely feel a responsibility, but I also see it as a part of being kind of this big sister creature mm-hmm. um writing for these younger siblings that I'm constantly surrounded by. Um, the one thing that I do feel incredibly responsible for is making sure the representation is good, making sure that the people who look like me, no matter what age they are, are seeing themselves represented in a way that makes them feel good, that makes them feel hopeful, that makes them feel uplifted. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I think that like, but also that validates their experiences, right? Because I think there are times we're often conditioned to believe that you can't have, you can't have both. Like, if things are terrible, then they're just terrible, right? But they can also be funny. Like, you can laugh in the thick of like I can laugh at a funeral. That I've actually been at a funeral where the preacher cracked a joke and we all just busted out laughing. Yeah, and it was the best moment yeah. of the funeral. Yeah. You know, there there is light. Like darkness cannot exist without light. Mm -hmm. Like there is levity in everything. So making sure that I am presenting these experiences as authentically as possible, but also with the caveat that like, it's going to be okay. And honestly, even if it isn't okay, it's still actually okay. Yeah. Gosh. And it, it, you know, it's hard, but it's a hard that's worth it to me. Um, Just because... If I do nothing else, when I am no longer here on earth, I want it to be said that people looked at me and saw what they could do Mm. and decided to chase after it. There are chapters in Dear Martin that are written in pure dialogue. So you have the character's name, a colon, and what's being said. There are no 
dialogue tags. There's no exposition whatsoever. And part of the reason I wrote them that way is so that anybody can find themselves in this conversation. Mm -hmm. And I find that I often have people who will come to me. It's usually straight white boys, like the real popular jockey ones who are at the peak of privilege, (laughs) who basically, like, if you ask for it, it will be given to you. Those types. They will come to me and they will say, I was nervous about reading this book because I thought, you know, you were going to be going on and on about racism. But I actually really appreciated getting to see this perspective that I understand. Mm. So there's not as much pushback as I expected. Good. Um, yeah, and, and that has been good. Like, it it makes me feel hopeful. Yeah. Um, knowing that there are people who are willing to step outside of their comfort zones into these shoes that don't belong to them. Um, and while it's true that no one can ever really truly live inside another person's skin and mind and know what they're going through, we can always connect on the point of emotion. So when you have this kid who is unjustly arrested, I go into these spaces and I say, have any of you ever been accused of a thing that you didn't do? Boom, the connection is made. Yeah. Have any of you ever been in a, in a room where you felt out of place? Boom, connection made. So we can all identify with these emotions that this kid is feeling, which is where empathy comes from. So I think that like when I'm answering these questions and like going into these spaces and trying to get people to shake out of, well, this is divisive, I'm uncomfortable, I don't want to talk about it. The easiest way to do that is by asking them questions. And it's such like, there's so much light in the world, despite the amount of darkness that's here too. Um, And I find that like, the more I focus on finding that light and finding the ways that we are able to connect with each other, the better things go. I had for so long in my life been giving up before I tried and be like, oh, I can't do that. Like I talked myself out of so many things and because again, I thought I would, if I didn't work out, I I wouldn't be able to recover. And it was that fear of not being able to recover that held me back from doing things that I, I knew deep in my heart that I wanted to do, or I had an idea to do. So this was a big juncture in my life for me because it like, it shifted my thinking right? Mm -hmm. Uh, It shifted my thinking to realize that, oh, you could try something and it could like your biggest dream and you could, it could not work out and you could have enjoyed the experience and felt alive and be ready for the next obstacle or journey. And so what was the next obstacle or journey? Girls who code. So, (laughs) which is, you know, so then I, I lose, I'm sitting there and I'm like, okay, I lost, but like, I loved it. And so I want to keep change making. I want to keep helping people. Um, What is the one thing that I saw on the campaign trail that like really moved me that I think I can make a difference on? And, you know, my, since my parents came here as refugees, I've literally had a job since I was 12, like Baskin Robbins, retail, like you name it, telemarketing. And I really believe in the American dream. Like I really believe that like, through hard work, through education, that you can like march up into the middle class. And my family is really a reflection of that. And so when I was running for office, I'd, I'd go into these New York City public schools and I'd see boys, you know, computer labs full of boys learning to code, not a girl in sight. And I was like, what's going on here? Like I knew 
Silicon Valley was like a boys club, but I didn't know that that started in high school. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to, I didn't understand it. So I started kind of every day. I, I got a job as, you know, working in government, but during my lunch break in my, at night, I would go meet with people who were professors teaching computer science, you know, uh, teachers that were teaching science and education, like organized, like women. Like I just wanted to learn everything there was about why were there not, why were women not in technology? Why were less than 18% of the technology force female? Why were, you know, computer science classes in high school or middle school, only 20% of them were girls? Like why? And kind of came up with this idea about teaching girls to code in summer camps that were free. And here's the thing, Rachel, I didn't know how to code. I did not. Mm, I didn't know that about you. How funny. I was a poli-sci speech vacations major. I was terrified of math and science. But because I ran that campaign and tried something and it didn't, again, it didn't break me, I suddenly felt like, wow, I could take out other challenges about things, not be a perfectionist and just, and it be okay. And so it didn't occur to me that like I had to learn how to code and be an expert in a subject to start something. What I felt like was I needed to have passion and the will to want to make a difference and want to, and want to create opportunity for girls. And that's where I was coming from. I think that we raise girls and boys differently. Absolutely. So we encourage boys to, and I have a son, so I, I, you know, my family is guilty of this too. Like, you know, we encourage our boys to like crawl to the top of the monkey bars and just jump, you know, to man up, to toughen up. And it's normally kind of through physicalness, but with our girls pretty much from 30 months, we are protecting them, you know, one in the name of, of again, physical danger. So we'll like, be careful, honey, you know, don't swing your swing too high. Like, mm-hmm. is your dress dirty? Let me clean it up. Like, did you get that toy back from her? Like, say sorry. So we're, we're insulating our girls from danger and failure. And we're doing the very opposite with our boys, right? You can't be brave if you're tired. Like you cannot be brave if you're tired. And- oh my, you just like my, my brain just exploded like the emoji. You cannot be brave if you're tired is the quote of the day. That is so good. Will you unpack that? So every woman I know is exhausted. Like we're exhausted, exhausted. It is no wonder, right? We're not as brave as we want to be. And we put off doctor's appointments because suddenly going to the doctor became selfish. You know, we put other people's feelings before us. When we need to go for a walk, we're like, oh, I'll get to it later. You know, we don't sleep enough. We don't eat right. And so all of that is making us so tired and exhausted. So it's hard to kind of lift yourself out. It's, it's just, it's easier to kind of go with the flow, right? And do the thing that's going to make other people happy and not rock the boat and not change that job that you feel like about, or like get out of the relationship that you know, you're no longer in love with that person. So it's easier to just do the thing that's easy, which often is not the brave thing. So the first thing I say to, to, to women is like, get rested, get ready. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you have to, you can't be brave if you're tired. And I don't know if you feel this way, but I feel like women are more tired than we've ever been. Absolutely. Which is right? I think you yeah. see that more. And across the board, across socioeconomic status, across race, across religion, across everything. Like we are, one thing that we universally have in common is we are all exhausted. And Instagram hasn't helped, right? Because right. it's almost you're right. like, you're lazy if you're taking self-care, right? You're not hustling, yes. you're not working hard enough. You're not, you know, you're not going for it. And, and that's just a huge problem. And that's why, you know, I do these like failure Friday posts on, um, 
on Fridays, but I think it's so important for women like us to show the real, the realness. Cause I don't know about you, but like I go really hard and then I crash. Yeah. And like really crash and yeah. like, like get sick crash. And then I get back up and I, it's like, I haven't learned anything. Like all I need uh, to do is yes. build into my week where I'm resting. And that's why flexibility is so important in making sure we create workspaces that do that because it's, it, we can do that. We can build that in because we're the kind of CEOs of our organization. Yeah but it's harder when you're not. Um, yeah. So look, rest is big. And then the, the other thing I've been, you know, the, this idea of practicing imperfection, you know, I feel like we think that if we don't do the perfect thing, like everything will fall apart. So the way I always tell women, this is like e- emails, like every woman I know is afraid to send an email with a typo in it. And she'll like reread and rewrite and reread and rewrite with like a hundred emojis and explanation points. She doesn't offend anybody. <laughs> and like by that time, it's like, there's no time for anything else. And so what I say to women is like, you know, send an email with a typo in it. And like, I promise you, like nothing will happen because we go quickly from, I have a typo to I'm stupid to I'm an idiot to I'm going to get fired in like 10 seconds. Mm-hmm. And you realize that the worst possible thing that you think is going to happen probably isn't going to happen. And so this idea of like practicing imperfection is really, or like going to the grocery store without a full face of makeup on or bringing store-bought cookies to your kid's birthday party. Like it's okay. And part of what I think happens is that like, it's like for me, what I feel like the hack on failure is, is to imagine the worst thing that could possibly happen. Like, so for me, I ran for office. I'm like, okay, I'm going to lose. I'm going to be broke. Everyone's going to laugh at me. And then I'm going to have a sworn enemy for the rest of my life. Great. <laughs> Having a great. sworn inter- enemy is very dramatic. It sounds a little bit like you're a pirate. That's very empowering. I like it. Um, but yeah, like I'm going to do something that's going to anger somebody because I'm going against the grain and they're never going to forget that, which is kind of what happened. But like, my point is, is like, I feel like once you visualize the worst thing happening when it happens, you're like, okay, I've kind of experienced this. Like it's a little meta, but it works. And mm-hmm. it's kind of the same thing for, for practicing imperfection. It's like, you realize that like the thing that I thought was not, was going to happen just didn't. And it's okay. Well, and I also think that we've kind of been told, and I think this goes back to us being raised as perfectionists that like you have to be an expert in something to start. Whereas I often think that the best business people are, are trying to solve a problem that they faced or saw. And so for me, right, I saw like, wait, why are girls not coding? And I was very curious about understanding why that wasn't happening and then started approaching it like in some ways, like writing a book report, like what are all the reasons why this isn't happening? And then, and then had this idea and I didn't let the fact that I wasn't an expert almost stop me. And in some ways, had I been a woman in technology and had gone through this, I probably would have had a lot more, it probably would have been harder for me to launch girls who code because I would have been like, Oh no, 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 that and that and that and that you can't do this. Right. Whereas my naivety is probably what allowed me to now build a movement that's reached millions of girls. Uh, and so in some ways, your passion and not your expertise is a benefit. Uh, and I think totally. We have to see it kind of that way. And men certainly do. Most men I know, I feel like, are, are starting businesses about things that they actually don't know anything about, but just see an opportunity. You're so incredible because you built your empire and nobody gave that to you. Mm. But in fact, you probably had to fight for the recognition that people would have gotten if they had done one fourth of what you'd already built. Yeah. 
because you were not the traditional, right? Like, sure. Person. Well, definitely if they were, if definitely, <laughs> definitely if they were a guy, it's a yeah. whole different thing yeah. for whole sure. Different thing. And, um, and so, and that's the thing I think for so long we think, well, I'm just going to work real hard and somebody will recognize me. And it's like, Mm-mm, nope. Like you have to create your own destiny. You have to create your own success, your own power. And there's a lot of fun in that too. Like bravery is like a moonshot, right? Most of the, some things don't work out. Like I'm sure like people, and that's, a, that's the other thing. I think people often look at our life and be like, oh my God, you're so lucky. And it's like, no, there, there are 10 things that happen on a day-to-day basis. Like, you know, I had five miscarriages before I had my son. Mm. Like fertility for me has been that thing. But every, you know, I have kind of like stood up to it and said, all right, I'm not, you know, I'm going to be a mom. Right. And I'm, I'm going to keep going in and keep going in and keep going. I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to let this situation break me. And I think that like, I think that oftentimes um, we let we let some of our biggest pain and some of our biggest obstacles stand in front of our destiny. The Rachel Hollis Podcast is produced by me, Rachel Hollis. It's edited by Andrew Weller and Jack Noble. At Amica Insurance... We know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.